I want us to consider the, the words of that last song. God, whatever comes my way, I will trust you. And we repeated that a number of times. God, whatever comes my way, I will trust you. And I want us to just simply reflect on that truth and ask ourselves whether this truth is evidenced in our lives. That we truly believe that God, whatever comes my way, I will trust in you. In your suffering, are you able to experience the peace and hope in Christ, trusting that whatever comes my way, that I will trust God? Or do you find yourself anxious and hopeless, becoming angry and overwhelmed by the seeming lack of fairness in your circumstances? So as you sit for a moment and you just ponder that question, do you truly believe those words that you just declared? God, whatever comes my way, I will trust in You. God, whatever comes my way, I will trust in You. See, while our lives are not free from suffering, God has given us freedom to experience and reveal His glory in the midst of our suffering. That we are not free from suffering, but we have freedom in suffering. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning as we continue our our summer series on celebrating freedom. And we're going to look at what it really means to have freedom in suffering. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 8. Otherwise, we'll have it on the screens. And then, if you would, let's go ahead and stand together as we read this passage this morning. We're going to be looking at Romans 8, verses 18 through 28. And this is what it says. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would take 
your word this morning and that you would implant it on our heart. That we might experience freedom in suffering. That we might see your grace as loving and as good and the source of hope, the source of joy, and the source of your presence. God, may we rejoice this morning in your word. May we be built up and encouraged, God, as we hear your truth. May you bind any work of the enemy that looks to deceive, to devour, to destroy in the name of Jesus. And may be your spirit who confirms your word. May it be your spirit who builds us up May it be your spirit who encourages and strengthens us. Lord God, may you push me aside and may it be you who brings your word forth in power. In each of us, God, may we settle our hearts before you and may you speak to us with open hearts and with open eyes. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, freedom in suffering is not the absence of difficulty, but hope in the glory of God's grace and presence. Freedom in suffering is not the absence of difficulty, but hope in the glory of God's presence and grace. So freedom in suffering is not the absence of difficulty, but hope in the glory of God's grace and presence. I remember years ago, after my grandfather passed away, he had two particular verses that were attached. One that was in his Bible, and then one that was in his wallet. And the verse in his Bible dealt with his age. It spoke of that when he was old and gray, let him, his life not be taken until he had fulfilled every ounce of the calling that God had given him. The second was a, a, a statement that he had placed in his wallet. And it was, in essence, this statement. That freedom in suffering is not the absence of difficulty, but hope in the glory of God's presence or in the glory of God's grace and presence. He summed it up a little more simply than that. It is that suffering is not the absence of turmoil, but it is the presence of God. In Christ, we are going to suffer. And as people who live in this world, we're going to suffer. And suffering is very seldom seen as something that is freeing. In our culture, suffering is actually really to be mitigated at all costs. Right? We've got a pill for everything. We've got uh, Novocaine. Not that we should even endure this kind of pain. I'm not saying that it's a bad thing. I'm just saying that we are a culture that has gotten used to painkillers. Are we not? I mean, for everything. This same grandfather told me of a time of having his tonsils taken out 
in the 1930s. They had a shot that they gave at the back of his tonsils, and it didn't quite work. And so once they had started to remove the tonsils and realized it was no longer working, the doctor looked at the nurse and said, we just keep going. And he said, I can remember that the, the, the little sleeve that was slipped over the tonsils, and it was on a twist crank, and it was just a, a, a knife that sliced right through the tonsils and took them off. And he said it was agonizing. He tells the story of his, his sister holding him down on the table. Those kinds of things today we don't even think about. Right? Till now. Right? As much as we can do to offer. Yeah. But our culture is about eliminating suffering. In fact... We attempt to eliminate suffering through blind tolerance without speaking the truth in love so as to not offend. And combined with that blind tolerance is a a pleasure-first, feel-good lifestyle that's really led to a culture that's marked not by greater joy and hopefulness, but a culture that's marked by despair and anxiety and anger. Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt in their book, The Coddling of the American Mind, describe the shift in the culture this way. They refer to it as the untruth of fragility, the idea that whatever doesn't kill you makes you weaker. We see that, don't we? We see things in culture that, <clears throat> that moves us to a place where suffering is actually something that is to be avoided at all cost. In fact, it's measured against fairness, what is fair, and what in our moment seems just and right. Essentially, our culture sees suffering as something that no longer makes us stronger, but that it's a form of bondage with no way out. There can be no good and redeeming value to suffering. By way of contrast, in verses 20 through 21 in our passage this morning, it says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. As Christians, God calls us to experience difficult things. However, the believer's life is different from the world. Suffering is not experienced in anxiety and despondency, but rather peace and freedom. It is in our suffering that God is often most glorified because Christ himself was most glorified in his suffering. It is that we can have freedom in our suffering. See, because of God's grace, there is purpose in our suffering. And what the culture experiences as bondage, we experience as freedom in anticipation of God's future glory. We can walk freely resting in the grace of our sovereign creator and savior. So this is why in verse 18, Paul begins, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, Often what happens in suffering, and it's easy, is we often take our eyes off of God in a moment, and we begin to focus on our circumstances. In fact, think about some of the questions that are often asked. 
one of those first questions is, why me? Lord, why, why me and why now? Now, the question that I always ask with that then is, that follows along with that is, God, you sure you couldn't do this some other way? Right? Do I really have to experience pain to reveal your glory? To fulfill your purpose? Well, the truth is that Suffering is not designed to take our eyes off of God. It is actually designed to draw us closer to God. It's there to show us the glory of God. John Huffman Jr. in his book, Who's in Charge Here, puts it this way. He says, there are things worth more than an endeavor to avoid immediate pain and discomfort. In fact, you and I are called to share in Christ's sufferings. Our greatest goal is not to avoid suffering. God uses His suffering. And because God uses suffering, we have freedom. See, the context to our passage this morning actually deals directly with this truth. In verses 16 and 17 of chapter 8, it says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. It is in our suffering that we identify with Jesus. Think about our attitudes. How do you feel about your suffering? Are you a grumbler? Are you a complainer? Are you a justice warrior? God, this doesn't feel fair. Like the guy down the street, you should see what he's doing. And he's thriving and you got me in this situation? You gotta be kidding me. God, I'm just trying to do the right thing here. And I keep getting hammered and it's unrelenting. What's wrong? You don't seem so loving right now. I don't get it. Right? That can be the things that come out. And for most of us, we've been there. Now, Hebrews 11, 35 through 38 actually gives us a picture of some different forms of suffering. And this is important. It says, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. That's suffering. Those are people suffering for their faith in Jesus. I was listening to a pastor who was recently arrested in Canada. Arrested for the church gathering. Are we ready to suffer for Christ? Not as people of bondage, but actually people in freedom. Not as people who are in despair and despondency 
but as people who are walking in joy and in hope. See, for the world, if we don't know Christ, there is no purpose to suffering. There is no point to it. There is no end to it. And yet, for a believer, for those who have repented and put their faith on Christ, there is something greater than the suffering. The suffering of this life is the worst that it gets. It's the worst that it gets. For the unbeliever, it's the best that it gets. As followers of Christ, do we actually really embrace that truth? That suffering in this life is the worst that it gets. It does not get worse than this. There's freedom in that. It's like boot camp, is it not? I remember my brother-in-law, as he went to officer candidate school, one of the things that he shared was this, he said, I just took day by day. If I can get through this day, I can get through the next day. And I go through it and I walk through it and he said, this is the worst that it gets. In the same way, as a follower of Christ, our suffering today is the worst that it gets. Oh, it may look different, but there is a coming glory that is far greater than the worst that this has to offer. See, this is what the end of verse 18 says. It says that in all of this suffering, that it's not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us when Christ returns. In essence, the sufferings of today are not even worthy to be remembered when Christ returns. Not even remembered That's what makes it possible to experience the freedom of Christ in our suffering. If I've suffered greatly, how much more great will it be to share in Christ's glory? The greatness of God's glory so overwhelms any suffering that the suffering of this life won't even be remembered. That's how good it is. The greatness of suffering in this life has no match to the greatness of God's glory when he comes in restoration. That's the beauty that we have. What a source of joy and hope to know that Christ is redeeming a people, that he is restoring his creation for those who have repented and believed on him. Whatever suffering seems great today won't even be a flicker on a match compared to the beautiful glory of God and his restoration of his people. That's awesome. See, it's important to recognize in this passage that Paul's saying that all of creation is suffering and desiring to be restored. And so there's three freeing attributes about our suffering so that we can know that our suffering is not unique to us. Three freeing attributes. The first is this. In verse 19, it says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Suffering is temporary for believers in Christ. It's temporary for believers in Christ. It's temporary. J.B. Phillips paraphrases verse 19 in this way. He says, The whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. 
who are the sons of God? They are those who have believed on Christ for their salvation. Suffering is temporary for believers. Romans 8, 12 through 15 says, So then, brothers, we are dead or not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That means that when suffering comes against us, what do we actually have to fear? And he's saying nothing. Because the glory of God outweighs that, that our hope is not in the circumstances of today, but it is in the future glory of God, knowing that God is carrying out his purpose now. The question for us is, do we embrace God's purpose? Do we actually embrace the purpose of God? Or do we resent the purpose that God has given us? If we resent the purpose that God has given us, we are going to struggle, we're going to kick and groan, we're going to complain, and we're going to see God as unjust. The second aspect that's freeing to us about suffering is that although it's a consequence of the fall of mankind, it produces good through God's redeeming grace. Although it's a consequence of the fall of mankind, it produces good through God's redeeming grace. Verses 20 through 21 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See, tension between countries, personal suffering, are all a result of the fall of man. In Genesis 3, 17 through 19, immediately after Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God said to Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and sistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The fall of man brought turmoil. It brought suffering. But for the believer... That suffering is temporary, and through it, good comes. It comes through the redeeming grace of God, and through the redeeming grace of God, we are able to identify with Jesus in his suffering. 1 Peter 2, 20 through 21 says, For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Verse 24 continues, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Through suffering and his redeeming grace, God is purifying us. He's actually making us 
into a bride that is to be presented to him. He's actually growing us in righteousness, and in so doing, he's actually revealing his glory, not simply to us, but to a world in desperate need of him. As followers of Christ, we suffer differently than the world. It's one of the great detriments when the church begins to look like its world and it's complaining and it's grumbling. The Spirit of God within us changes and transforms us and should be seen even in our suffering. It should be freeing to know that God uses suffering to bring good. To demonstrate his redemptive plan for mankind. You see, our suffering actually reminds us of the coming glory of God when he will restore his creation. It actually reminds us of his coming. In fact, I would say so far is that it actually creates an eager longing for his coming. Stephen Cole shares an insight from John Piper who points out that if you think that somehow the suffering in this world is out of proportion to what is deserved, then you do not grasp the infinite holiness of God or the unspeakable outrage of sin against his holy God. God's judgment on the entire creation as seen in all of history's horrible tragedies reveals how horrific our sin is to him. Piper adds, but in fact, the point of our miseries, our futility, our corruption, our groaning is to teach us the horror of sin and the preciousness of redemption and hope. You see, suffering in this world is simply a foretaste of what is to come apart from Jesus. Suffering in this world is simply a foretaste of what is to come apart from Jesus. This is the best and least suffering that we will ever experience if we choose to rebel against Christ and not put our faith in Him. It is to actually point us to our need for Jesus, a need for a redeeming Savior to save us from the consequence of sin. The third freeing aspect of suffering is that it's experienced by all. It's experienced by all. It's not unique to you. Your suffering is not unique to mankind. It feels like that at times, does it not? But God wants us to know that it's not unique to you. Suffering is experienced by all. And there may be some of us go, yeah, but you don't understand the depth of suffering that I have. And so that's fine, but it comes in degrees. Sometimes it does come in degrees. But it comes into degrees in the way that God has promised. That God takes us through things and he actually gives us a way out in him. God didn't say that he wouldn't give us more than we couldn't handle. That's not a God that we serve. He's constantly giving us more than we can handle. It's that we can't handle on our own. 
So he calls us to actually find our strength in him, and therefore he gives us a way out. He'll give us what we can't handle in our flesh, but what we can handle in him. Suffering is experienced by all. It's universal. It's the whole creation. But he compares it here to the pains of childbirth. And while it's completely miserable in the moment for the believer, the the end result is completely worthwhile. He's pointing us back to the beginning of this passage and reminding us that yes, it stinks when you're in the midst of suffering. And what you're rejoicing about is not, oh, hey, thank you, Lord, that this hurts. What you're rejoicing on is the fact that God is redeeming you, His promises are true, and that He's purifying you through it. That His grace is sufficient. What He's pointing you to is that it is worthwhile. That just in the way that a mother has a child... That those four, five, 20, 50 hours of pain is nothing compared to holding that child in your arms. In fact, it's so not compared that people choose to have more children after having suffered that pain because the glory of that child outweighs the pain of that birth. God's saying that our suffering won't even be remembered in the face of God's redeeming return and restoration of his people and creation. See, verse 22 and 23 remind us that when we share in Christ's glory, our suffering will have been worth it. So, now that we have those truths that actually help us see that there is freedom in our suffering, how do we actually experience the freedom of God's glory in the midst of our suffering. Well, notice what verse 24 and 25 says. It says, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So the first key to experiencing the freedom of God's glory in the midst of our suffering is to trust in the hope of God's grace with patient perseverance. Trust in the hope of God's grace with patient perseverance perseverance. It's a persevering hope. We're not pessimists, but rather we enter the world with the passion of Christ. Christ had the answer and we have the answer through him. Paul entered the world excited because he believed that God would redeem the world. This allows us to be free from worry, depression, despondency, and from the freedom of the consequence of sin. See, Our strength and fulfillment is not in ourselves or our actions, but it's in God. It is the very essence of our freedom in Christ. We trust in the hope of God's grace with patient perseverance. We trust that He is sufficient, that He is enough, that He is working, that He has a plan, and that He does fulfill His promises. You see, when we look at passages like this, we can rest in his promises because we know that God fulfilled his promise to send a savior in Jesus. And so we can trust 
in the hope of God's grace with patient perseverance. I think sometimes what happens to us in suffering, we just want it gone. And so all we do is we endure blindly. God, I, just, I don't even care what you're doing right now, I just want this done. It, it, it's kind of like what happens when you, you go to the doctor's and uh, you watch them pull out a large needle and you just kind of go, I'm not going to look at it. Not going to look at it and I'm just going to let them do their thing. And I can count to five or 10 or 15 and this will be done with then and then we can all go our own way, right? And in some cases, we actually get put to sleep and then we wake up and it feels like it's all better. That's not what God wants for us in our suffering. He doesn't want us just counting to five, to 10, to 15, and then passing through it. Rather, he has a purpose in that suffering. And we're to patiently persevere in his grace, knowing that God will restore, that God will redeem. Our hope is not in the circumstances. Our hope is in Jesus. Our strength is in Jesus. So unlike the world, which just wants to get rid of that suffering and becomes angry and frustrated, as Christians, we experience suffering in a way that says, listen, this is the worst that it gets. God's promise is that he will redeem. And I can patiently persevere because I know that God is redeeming his purpose for me. W.H. Griffin Thomas says this, he says, hope is an essential element of our salvation and must never be omitted from our contemplation of what the Christian life means. Faith looks backward and upward. Hope looks onward. Faith accepts, but hope expects. Faith is concerned with him who promises, but hope is occupied with the good things promised. Faith appropriates, but hope anticipates. Hope is always centered on the coming of the Lord. You see, when we're going through suffering, as we trust in the hope of His redeeming grace, we're actually preparing ourselves. He's preparing us for His arrival. And we're excited by this impending arrival and are presented at our best. The idea of perseverance is that we have endured through godly character. It's the important to realize that anticipation then is not the same as anxiety or anxiousness. Anticipation is eagerness. It's not a passing of time, but rather remaining actively obedient and seeking God's call on your life. In your suffering, God's purpose does not change. I've shared with you guys before that in the many days in the hospital for that season of life, God gave me a gift for evangelism. But the more I've thought about it, the more I've questioned whether it was a gift for evangelism or rather simply a boldness in evangelism. I think what happens sometimes is that when things are going well for us or they're going smoothly, we forget that God has called each of us to be an evangelist. We forget that what God is desiring most from us is not our comfort, but our righteousness. 
We forget that money is not our security, but Christ is. And we forget that our hope is not tied to our circumstances, but through the redeeming work of the cross, which is the only source of lasting eternal hope. The second thing then, after we hope or trust in the hope of His redeeming grace, is to seek Him faithfully and allow His Spirit to lead. So we trust in this hope of patient perseverance. And then we seek Him faithfully and allow the Spirit to lead. Notice what it says in verses 26 through 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, one of the things I want us to see first and foremost in this is the Spirit actually here redeems even our groaning. The groaning of creation that's spoken of here in verses 18 through 25, repeatedly spoken of this idea of creation, us groaning as we wait for Christ to come. And then what does it say? The Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This is no longer a, a grumbling or a longing, but rather it is the Spirit of God actually coming with us understanding and experiencing, sharing in the sufferings of Jesus, praying on our behalf. You ever sat before the Lord and not known what to say? Ever sat before the Lord and just kind of gone, God, God I... Mm. Mm, God. I don't know, God. The Spirit is praying for you. The Spirit is taking your groanings and He is praying on your behalf to the Father. In those moments where you're seeking God and you have no idea what to say, the Spirit does. That's freedom. We're not bound to ourselves, but we are actually free in Christ. We live beyond our own strength and abilities and understanding through the Holy Spirit. Often we don't even know where to begin to pray regarding the world we live in, the struggles we face. But the one thing we know is that when we pray seeking God's will, the Holy Spirit articulates our needs to the Father for us. The Holy Spirit communicates our needs to the Father. It gives us freedom to talk to God freedom to forgive and freedom to love unselfishly. So we trust in the hope of His grace through patient perseverance. We seek Him and allow the Spirit to lead. And finally, we embrace His loving plan for our life. We embrace His loving plan for our life. As a planner, it's easy to put my plans before God's plans. But God has a way of interrupting life. Why? Because it is about God's glory and not man's glory. 
It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We need to embrace his loving plan, which may look and be different than our own. Because as we embrace it, then we will begin to love his plan rather than our own. Now, Romans 8.28 is a verse that is often misquoted and it's often incomplete. Our culture today has taken verses and there's just enough truth that it seems okay. Now, I appreciate Steph Curry's faith and the fact that he's been bold about his testimony in Jesus. But have you ever looked at Steph Curry's shoes? It simply say, I can do all things. In Romans 8.28, people often speak of this verse. And they take this verse and they say, you know, all things work together for good. Once again, a half-truth. I can do all things through Christ. It's actually a false teaching to cut it off. I can't do all things. I'm not going to recommend shows, but I will share with you that one of the shows that we've been watching recently is the show Manifest. In it, they quote Romans 8.28, but they consistently quote it just as I shared it. All things work together for good. That is not true. That is a lie. In fact, it's such a lie that for the unsaved, It is a condemnation to an eternity of suffering. The truth here is that, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Listen. All things do not work together for good. For those who don't love Jesus and are not according to His purpose, it will not turn out good. Suffering, if you don't know Jesus, should call you to a point of seeing that sin is destructive and there needs to be repentance and belief now. For the believer, suffering should be a reminder that sin has powerful consequences, but that God has overcome them through his redeeming grace and that he will return to restore his people. You see, God is truly working it for his good for those who are called according to his purpose. Our suffering is not a waste. You see, freedom in suffering is not about passively waiting for Christ's return, but rather points to God's coming glory, calling us to obedience and trust in His grace. A.W. Tozer puts it this way, It's doubtful that God can use anyone greatly, 
until he's hurt him deeply. That's harsh for us to hear. But God uses our suffering to remind us of our freedom in Jesus and to teach us the true freedom that we have through Christ and the work on the cross. Let's pray. Lord, as we see the freedom that we can have in suffering, may we not go back and live as people of bondage, people who have no hope, people who are blindsided by the difficulties of this life, people who have no joy. But God, may we be people who know of your coming, who rest in the restoration that is to come, who embrace your purpose and your glory. May we be even more enamored by you and more in love with you because of our suffering. May we be a people who see something in suffering that is not just removal and avoidance, but may we see it as an opportunity for your glory to be seen and for your glory to be experienced in our lives. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.